Om. We're talking meditation. Oh, hey, everyone. I'm Matt Ruby. I'm, I don't really say om when I meditate. I actually don't say it out loud, Matt, but I do say it in my mind. I'm Rob Kramer. Uh, welcome to another episode of Hell and Wellness. And I am a stand-up comedian and a writer, and I try to be healthy and, uh, you know, do the wellness thing. I'm a tech entrepreneur and a writer, and uh, been kind of on this health and wellness kick track addiction for a long, long time, too long to talk about, but I'm sure it'll come through some of our episodes. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about going on a silent 10-day meditation retreat, long meditation retreats, specifically Vipassana meditation. It's going to be interesting because uh, you never know where that retreat's going to find you. That's right. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, BS and nonsense in the wellness space, but I feel like we've both been on, I've been on a three-day silent meditation retreat, and I feel like uh, we have some interesting views on the topic. So why don't we get into it? Here we go. And quick note, we are not doctors. This is not medical advice. Don't take us that seriously and change your life and inject things or anything like that. We're here to entertain you, to give you our perspective on the world of wellness. So please, before you do anything serious, check with the doctor. The first day is over. You have nine more left to work. To work very hard. To get the best result of your stay here, you have to work very hard. Diligently, ardently, patiently, but persistently, continuously, it is your own hard work which will give you the best fruits of your stay here. Nothing else. Your own hard work. So what we just listened to was the Dharma talk, um, the end of the evening talk, from S.N. Goenka, who is my meditation teacher. He actually passed away about six years ago. Uh, he is one of the longest-running modern teachers in what's called Vipassana meditation, which is a technique that dates back to the Buddha, according to historical records. The Buddha sort of sat under the lotus tree and tried to uh, become still and awake and one with nature, however you might describe it, and the technique that he perfected after trying many, many, many techniques and approaches to stilling the mind uh, was called Vipassana. And Vipassana means, uh, it's a Pali-English, P-A-L-I, Pali-Indian term, called uh, meaning seeing things as they are, not as they appear to be. So seeing things as they are, not as they appear to be. And what we just listened to in the clip was what happens after the end of day one. Uh, day one of a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which is something I did in my early 20s, nearly 30 years ago, uh, is a very rigorous method for learning meditation. It's not your... Uh, typical meditation app that we're familiar with now, like Calm and Headspace. Uh, you go in for about 10 days. It is 11 hours of meditation per day uh, for 10 straight days. You don't actually break silence until the 10th day. It sounds like something that no one on or in their right mind would want to do. Uh, but it was one of the most profound experiences I ever had. And um, 
it was uh, probably the beginning of uh, sort of setting up my life for sort of an adult life, you know, practicing meditation. Uh, and it's infiltrated my life in many, many different ways, uh, subtle ways, overt ways that I, you know, don't really, uh, aren't really aware of until, until they arise. So uh, 10 days, silent meditation, 11 hours, 110 hours in 10 days, crazy schedule, sitting in a room, men on one side, women on the other, uh, SN Goenka coming on audio if he's not there. I happened to be at a retreat where he was there, which was kind of unusual because I don't think he ever came back to this American retreat center in Central California. Um, have you ever done a 10-day meditation uh, retreat, Matt? I have done three days, but never 10. Three days, yeah. I Well, that's the other thing, is that after you do a 10-day, at least in the Vipassana meditation um, technique, uh, you can then do a three-day when they have them, which happens to be irregularly. Uh, and one of the reasons for doing the 10-day, at least my experience and how they sort of describe it, is that uh, it kind of takes a couple, three days to just get your mind to unwind. When I went on my three-day silent meditation retreat, the people running it was uh, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, who are two sort of notable people of bringing uh, meditation to the West. Um, and I, when I arrived, I remember that you have like a session where you're allowed to talk for a little while before you, you go into silence. And I remember this couple who's been to a bunch of them before telling me that actually in a lot of ways, the three days is harder than the 10 days. And I was like, how does that make any sense? I don't really get it. And afterwards, I kind of understood what they were saying. I don't think it's actually harder, but the hard part is... I could see that first like day and a half or two days, at least in my experience, and this seemed to be echoed by other people, that's really sort of the challenging part. And then you sort of settle into something. And so while I, I haven't done the 10 days, so I can't say for sure, but I could see maybe you get more of sort of that that quality time where you're you're in flow with the whole thing as opposed to the sort of fighting and trying to get there and then all of a sudden it's over, Yeah, uh, which I got a little bit of taste of with the three day. So it's uh, one interesting side note. You mentioned Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. They were students of S.N. Goenka. So they were 20, 30-year-old students of him. They decided that they were going to break away from the rigor uh, and discipline of that particular uh, approach to Vipassana meditation and they formed spirit rock and they kind of loosened up the reins a little bit. I think they actually lessened the amount of time. And to your point, uh, there's a period where you can talk in the beginning and they do some walking meditation. But one of the things about the three day and why they may have said that is that the first three days are actually not devoted to Vipassana meditation on a 10 day. They're devoted to um, the practice of what's called anapana, which is uh, the technique for focusing the mind, uh, and it's focusing the mind just literally by focusing your attention on the breath uh, as it comes in, as it goes up in a narrow area between the upper lip and the tip of the nose. And um, it takes about three days just to kind of like unwind all those householder thoughts and everything you've been doing and zhuzhing around and, you know, on the internet, etc. It's day four in the morning of this 10-day retreat that you actually learn the technique of Vipassana. So uh, it is the, the, the kind of three-day lean-in is part and parcel to setting up the mind, calming the mind, uh, or I should say calming the noise in the mind, so you can practice Vipassana, which essentially— and What is the day four? Yeah, what, what happens then that's different than the first three days? 
Yes. So the technique, and keep in mind, all of this is technique. This is not a religion. This is not a cult. Uh, you don't need actually with a v- traditional Vipassana and SN Goenka. You only pay if you're an old student, but you don't have to pay. You can pay whatever you want, unlike Transcendental Meditation, which charges you a thousand bucks or whatever to get your mantra. If you want to donate, it's only it, it's on a donation only basis and you're housed and you're fed for uh, basically two and a half meals a day. So on day four, uh, Goenka teaches you the technique and the technique of Vipassana is observing the sensations, the actual sensations that are on and in your body as they arise and as they pass away. So what do I mean by that? You may have a gross, painful sensation in your knees for sitting perhaps in a cross-legged position. You may have a subtle sensation that's streaming high frequency through your body. You may have a fly on your face. And in my case, we didn't have any air conditioning at the time. They do now in some of these meditation halls and the windows were open and there were flies literally buzzing around my face. And you are meant to intend to observe the sounds, the sensations in and on your body as they arise and as as they pass away without reacting to them, without swatting the fly, without changing your seat position, without going, oh, God, that pain, that stitch in my side. And um, this happens three times during the day, three one-hour sits. They're called aditan sits, which are sits of strong determination where you are trying your damnedest to not react. The other sits, you can react, but you're still working toward that sit of strong determination. So not only are you just focusing your attention on the breath, you're actually scanning your body in your mind and you're going from head to toe and you are observing the sensations as they arise, as they pass away, part by part. So when he takes you through it, he's like, you know, let's start at the top of the head. We'll just check the head and we'll look at and feel the surface uh, and sensations there. We'll go to the neck, we'll go to the arms and so on down through the torso into the legs and to the feet down your body. And what happens is you become or can become so completely aware and attentive to sensations, which is the law of nature. It's just the physics, the atoms, the molecules of your experience arising and passing, arising and passing. Once again, sometimes if you've had a terrible, painful stitch in your side, um, the sensation is going to be a very gross, very heavy, very painful, and you're kind of, you're going to try to just observe and not have an aversion towards it. If it is a subtle, pleasurable sensation, as we know many subtle, pleasurable sensations to be, excitement, orgasm, thing like things like that, you try not to attach yourself to it. You try to simply once again observe it. And then there are the third sort of bucket is there are blind spots. There are places where like there's no sensation. There actually is sensation. You're just not aware of it. Perhaps it's embedded at a very much deeper level in your sensorial um, somatic body. Um, and so that's really what happens. And then from day four to 10, that's you, what you're practicing throughout the day. And the uh, silent meditation retreat that I went on, uh, I'll walk you through the day would be, you know, uh, uh, a meal, then an hour of sitting, then an hour lecture from either Sharon Salzberg or Joseph Goldstein. Then you might go outside for a walking meditation uh, for a half hour. Uh, then you might come back inside. There would be another sit 
then maybe some Q&A, which is the one time you're allowed to talk uh, if you have a question, uh, and then another sit, and then another walking meditation. Uh, and then, you know, day two, we started working on meta, which was a different loving kindness is how it's often referred to. So although it seems like, oh, you're just being silent for like three days, there's actually some variation within there of these different forms of meditation and lectures and Q&A and, and walking. And I'm curious, uh, for your retreat, was it a similar thing? Or was it more of a, a one note sort of experience? Yeah. So as I mentioned, Sharon and Joseph uh, were trained under Goenka. Everything that you described happens in a 10-day, except um, we don't do any lectures or talking. Uh, the Dharma talk, which is the talk about the Dharma, the laws of nature, happens once a night. And in fact, that clip we heard at the top of the episode uh, is the end of the night when he's going to move into his Dharma talk. So no talks during the day and and um, one walk during the day, uh, and that happens at lunch, after you eat lunch. And then metta, uh, the metta love practice, which is meditating on loving kindness, happens in really day eight, nine, and 10, to kind of like reacclimate you back into the world as you leave. Um, one of the things that Sharon and Joseph talk about uh, and why they broke away is they just thought it was too, um, it was too rigid for them, right? They didn't really subscribe to it after a while and they went off. And I think they, they were of, also trying to bring things to the West. And like we've talked about this before in terms of headspace, like sometimes I think there people are making compromises in order to reach a wider audience. Um, and, you know, we can debate the merits or, you know, of that. But I, I think that's in their mindset also of like, look, we can't get Westerners to do this otherwise. No doubt. And the thing is that uh, this is I happen to I feel lucky in the sense that I got in super early. I didn't know there weren't any alternatives at the time. Um, and Sharon and Joseph, I think, well, they were probably just starting their, their um, spirit rock. But what Goenka and his teachers and their teachers really subscribe to is the notion of going, you know, um, a, an inch wide and a mile deep. And he would say, um, and others who have debated this and talked about it in terms of what Sharon and Joseph did, but to your point, making it perhaps uh, easier in a sense for Westerners to acclimate to this is that uh, these are all distractions. If in the middle of the day, you're talking, or if in the middle of the day, you're listening with your mind intellectually, it is going to make your meditations much harder. And I found as well that when we got to the 10th day, which is the morning of the 10th day, when we break the silence and um, after breakfast, we could talk to our fellow meditators and then go back in. It was like watching a jet engine rev up from having been sitting on the runway for two years. And all of a sudden, the roar of the engine just go, blows and goes and your mind is steaming ahead. Yeah, for me, I remember being in the, the cafeteria type area and hard boiled eggs had been served and someone tapping on the egg in order to get the shell out. I was like, this is the loudest goddamn thing I've ever heard in my life. What is this person doing? I was, like, like they were just doing some normal thing that in a normal day, like I wouldn't even have noticed. But in, in that environment, after that level of silence and that degree of sensitivity, it became this roaring like uh, sound in my head. So I know exactly what you're talking about. 
And that's precisely it. You were so hyper aware and sensorily you felt the tapping of that egg moving through your body vibrationally. I mean, imagine, I remember once on the sixth day or so, um, there was somebody across the room who was sneezing like crazy. And I could say that it felt like someone was cutting a knife through my body. It was one of these loud, very strident, kind of acerbic, you know, sneezes. It was, it was horrible. But that is the material of, of enabling you to observe without reacting, to just feel the sensation. The notion is uh, that no sensation, good or bad, no thought, good or bad, is any better or worse. They're just sensation. It's what we do with the thoughts. It's what we do with the sensations that causes us to act upon things and then follow through on the actions. It's like if we're angry, sometimes we get angrier. If we're happier, sometimes we get more attached. And when the so-called ecstasy of whatever you're experiencing um, subsides, we're like, oh, fuck, why am I not so ecstatic and happy anymore? You know, so it's this process of trying to observe things as they are, Vipassana. Yeah, and uh, the walking meditation was something that I had never done before. Um, and for listeners, it's it's not just going for a walk. It's I, it's basically like it looks like a bunch of zombies prowling around the grounds. You're you're walking completely in like slow motion. Like one step can take you like 15 seconds of you noticing how you lift your foot up, you know, putting it down, the sensation of your foot landing and you're moving in like slow motion, paying attention to every step. So it's really like a way to move your body, but you're meditating at the same time, which was sort of fascinating for me. But I've got to say, I've never returned to it outside of being at a silent meditation retreat. Is it something that you have uh, retained and incorporated into your practice? Or is it just sort of something you did there? Yes. So uh, I really looked forward to my walking meditations during lunch hour. To your point, it's like being, it's like walking through molasses. Everything is slowed down. I remember watching uh, like a thousand, probably 10,000 ants build an anthill, like over an hour period. It was fascinating. Um, I, the one thing that I have to say that I've benefited from the years of Vipassana meditation is that I will do the equivalent of walking meditation through my life. I'll be walking down the street to a store. I will key into a walking meditation. I'll be sitting, um, or not sitting in a car, but getting out of the car, parking, moving to the next place and, and walking. I'll go from, you know, the back of my house to the front of my house if I'm aware, and believe me, this doesn't happen probably 95% of the time, I will key into that walking meditation experience that you just described, and it is profound, and it really just wakes me up. Yeah, I feel like in New York City, you're just going to get someone yelling yelling at you, hey, you got to move it, buddy! You know, I feel like uh, you're not allowed to move in slow motion around here, but... Um... Yeah, I, I guess uh, maybe it's something I should incorporate more. I guess that may, this might be a good topic for us. Reintegration. You know, you have this experience. It is profound. I agree with you. I had, you know, even though it wasn't as long, a lot of these uh, similar feelings. Uh, and then the question is, like, you come back to real life and does it all evaporate? How do you hold on to it? Which parts 
do you take? How do you integrate it into your life? Do you go back? I mean, have you been back? You just went to that one 10 day, you know, all those years ago and you haven't done it since or you've gone back for many of them. I'm curious about what happens afterwards. Yeah. So a couple quick things. First of all, uh, I've done about four or five 10 days and I've done probably half a dozen three days over the years. Um, it's gotten harder and harder to uh, go on a 10 day when there's literally no communication with the outside world. Um, and in fact, I thought about it recently because my son just uh, went off to college and empty nesters, et cetera, uh, much easier. Um, when I came back, I was decidedly and admittedly addicted to Vipassana meditation. And I did what he prescribed, he, SN Goenka, prescribed that we do, which is an hour in the morning and an hour at night. And that hour in the morning and an hour of night really kind of cradles and bookends the day. That doesn't mean that you're not distracted. You're completely distracted during the day. But if you stay connected to the technique, like any other, if you're a piano player or you're a baseball player, if you stay connected to the technique and you're constantly practicing, you're going to stay um, in some of the experience that is uh, awareness. And uh, so that's what I did for probably three, four years, pretty darn consistently to the point that um, uh, I've been working on this, uh, this book over the last few years, aren't we all? Um, but the book is essentially about some of the experiences I've had with yoga and meditation, et cetera. And it come, the title comes from an experience I had one morning. I was, this was my first marriage and my wife walks into the bedroom when I am in the middle of meditation and she says, I just need to ask you one thing. And I literally, in my apparently not too equanimous uh, way said, shut up, I'm meditating. That's the name of the book, Shut Up, I Meditate, um, which is kind of uh, paradoxical and ironic and kind of fucked up as well. But it's true. We are distracted human beings. And uh, like anything else, staying connected to the technique is important. Uh, I am not as connected as I have been in past years, but I can feel and experience the residual benefits. And one thing that I've heard, uh, especially within the 10 day retreats, is that uh, it can be really challenging for some people that there's people can have breakdowns, people can want to leave, you know, things like that. I'm curious if you've experienced uh, or been around things like that or even uh, experienced any of them on your own. Yeah, it's a great question because um, my most, I should say, relatively speaking, profound experience was on the seventh day, the morning of the seventh day of my first 10-day silent meditation retreat. And in the morning, you sit from 4.30 in the morning to 6.30, and then the bell rings, and then you go off to breakfast. Um, 6.30 bell rang. I was in a state of, um, how shall I describe it? My body had completely dissolved. The form, the mass the density, the heaviness of my body was now literally cloud-like. It was energy flowing. I couldn't feel the mass of my body. And I actually had what is what was later described to me, I didn't know it was called this, but um, a non-ejaculatory orgasm. Uh, it was every bit as good as any orgasm you've ever had. Just wow, you're know, like Sting. Well yeah. done. Well, there you go. Sting has been practicing this for a long time too. But that was profound. And what I got was out of that experience that we are all just atoms and molecules. And whether it was the floor below me or the people beside me or the clothes on my back, 
that all of this was just held together by energy. And that once I was able to transcend beyond the so-called mass of my body, and as we know, we are 99% space, even though we feel and experience and think that we're mass, uh, I got to experience that, you know, that's why some people describe it as the oneness, right? The, the everything connected thing. But And how about like the negative side of it or challenging or like have you seen people have breakdowns and like uh, like freak outs and things like that? I have not seen it in one of my 10 days, but my former wife, who is a big meditator, uh, went on a three-month, actually it was intended to be a six-month retreat. And she was meditating on a very intense Mahavana meditation practice called the death. It's colloquially called the death practice. She was meditating on her own death. And she got to the point where she was having a psychic breakdown. Um, And uh, she had to be yanked out by her supervising teacher. Uh, She lost a ton of weight. She wasn't eating. She was in a cabin in the woods on, on a Buddhist Buddhist retreat, retreat center. But, uh, you know, the mind is a really fucking crazy, dangerous thing sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, when you're confronted with nothing but your own thoughts, uh, things will be revealed to you. And that can be positive and it can also be negative. I think it can be a magnifying glass sometimes on what's already happening underneath. And I think that one of the reasons why I like the 10-day, and I know we have debated and I debated vociferously with you on our Calm Headspace app um, uh, episode, the notion of going deep and that you can't get it from a 20-minute or 10-minute or two-minute, whatever. But what I experienced is that the longer I meditated, number of hours, number of days, the thoughts just completely dissolved. There were hardly any thoughts left. They were simply just the sensations. And it's the sensations that tap you into the law of nature as it is, the truth of this being sort of, this is an atomic structure and the atoms vibrate at a certain frequency. And yet we're not in touch with that frequency. I shouldn't say we're not aware of that frequency. So it's the thoughts were almost the easiest part once I moved into the 10 day. On a three day, by the time second day rolled around, I was still having tons of thoughts. Three days, I was just kind of calming you know, the mind down and then it was over. So it was much harder for me. Yeah, I feel like uh, it, my way of framing it, it might be like, and I think this is true with meditation in general. At first, it's just sort of like this, these things keep popping up in your brain and you're trying to focus, but you know, you, you got, and to me, what starts to be revealed after a while is the pattern of how it, it's, it's not just like your mind is all over the place. Actually, it's this roster. It's like a baseball team where you've got like 25 players in the dugout. And each one's going to come up and take a couple at bats and go back down. But eventually you start to be like, this is just the same players, you know, trying to take a swing over and over again. And after a while, you just get tired of it and realize like, oh, this is not uh, actually my brain going crazy. This is just the same repetitive thoughts happening over and over again until they're eventually 
I don't want to say numbed, but you're just sort of like, yeah, whatever. I get it, brain. We're going to think about that again. We're going to think about her. We're going to think about that thing that happened with your parents. You're going to think about that work situation. You're going to think about uh, some art thing you want. And it's just going to be this roster of thoughts that appear over and over again until eventually you're fatigued by them and kind of give up on them. And then that's when you settle into like what I would call more the reality of being in the moment and the presence and what you're talking about, the sensations and the feelings and just being aware of that. And so I think that's part of what you get from sitting. Uh, the longer you sit, I think the more you get that annihilation of of self and of that sort of uh, hamster wheel of thoughts that's going on all the time. Right, right. I mean, look, we know thoughts are are energy, right? Thoughts are just energy. Like where do the thoughts live? Where do they come from? But we have them, we believe them, and we spend our entire lives acting on them, resisting them, you know, pushing, using them to push forward and achieve things and do things. Um, that's not, that's a very limited experience, as we know, of the real laws of nature. And the laws of nature dictate the physiological atomic structures of our body. One of the things I want to say about this before we kind of wind down in a few minutes is that no matter what you do in life, at least that this is what I experience, whether it's going deep in Vipassana meditation or whether it's going deep on the work you do or the book you write or the music you listen to or create, that going deep and moving through the discomfort, which Vipassana meditation, 10 days, can be a very, very, very uncomfortable experience. Once you get to kind of the other side and then really to the other side and you get to experience it, you get to really see, and this is kind of what in our previous episodes we talked about a little bit with hallucinogenics and things like that. Once you get to the other side, you get to experience that these thoughts that we have and that we that rule us and dictate us and rule and control other people is a very, very limited view of what life is. And, you know, there's no doubt that meditation is simply a technique to bring us back to the truth, the laws of nature on a physiological atomic level that thoughts have truly, as you describe, nothing to do with it. I encourage everyone to, if you can, if you ever get the opportunity, check out a 10-day silent meditation retreat. It's not the only way, but it is a way that will enable you to have a profound experience. Yeah, I do think there's a, a lot of overlap between uh, psychedelic hallucination and the experience that you get. It's almost like the organic, natural way to get to that sort of ego loss and like sort of uh, transcendent state uh, w without, I think not being able to talk is like a drug on some level. Um, and it's interesting because I'm connecting something that I ha hadn't thought of before, and maybe it's obvious, but I, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, the, when we talk about uh, Vipassana and, you know, a 10 day retreat and, you know, meditating on your own for two hours a day uh, versus, you know, the Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and um, bringing it to the West and making it three hours uh, uh, or three days instead of 10 and using, you know, an app like Headspace. I, what I'm starting to see, and we're both Jews, is some sort of parallel between Orthodox and Reform Judaism, that you've got sort of the pure sort of like, quote unquote, real way. 
and it's hard and difficult, but like the people who do it kind of look down upon those who are, are the reformed way, which is like sort of like, oh, we're coming to the West now. We have to kind of adjust for Western sensibilities. No one's going to participate if we make them do something that hard. Why don't we lighten up a little bit, make this more accessible and make this easier? And I'm seeing uh, in our conversation sometimes what I also hear sometimes in that conflict between Orthodox and reformed Jews, where it's, it's sort of a, a, a judgmental relationship and there's obviously a thread connecting them, but there's also a little bit of friction there. Um, I'm wondering, is that is that something that's ever occurred to you at all? Absolutely. Look, I have been, if anything, I've probably uh, rightfully accused of being more in the orthodoxy of the meditation world. At the same time, uh, in fact, there was a point in which I was like, I might just go off and fuck this householder life and, and uh, making lots of money and stuff like that and going to go become a monk because I want to go deeper and deeper. And I think your Orthodox Jew versus, uh, you know, reformed conservative Jew is, is a good one. I made the choice clearly that I was going to integrate this into my life. I feel like it's had an incredible impact. Um, all I'm encouraging people to do is have a deep experience with whatever it is you do and apply it and use it every day, every moment that you can be possibly aware, because there's a real value of benefit. Uh, if you can quiet your mind, if you can become more equanimous in any way, shape or form at whatever point in your life you're at, uh, what better thing for yourself, your family, your friends and mankind, humankind. So... And I think also just how immersed we are in technology. You know, we've both uh, worked plenty in technology and uh, I don't know about you, I would consider myself fairly addicted to it and, you know, online or on my phone so much. Uh, and it does in many ways feel like the antidote to that. I think uh, part of why I was attracted to the world of meditation and and going on a silent meditation retreat and things like that was impacted a lot by like, I don't think I'm leading, like my brain is not healthy and thriving when it's this plugged in. Um, and so I, I would add that of like technology and and how this is sort of the antithesis to how a lot of us are leading our lives nowadays. Yeah. I mean, especially in our tech-driven world, if you can take a day, an hour, a week, 10 days and quiet your mind and unplug, literally unplug from technology, the better off. I want to lead us out with a clip uh, of Goenka sort of taking us into the end of a meditation session. Uh, he's a very, he has a very mellifluous voice, at least that's how it comes across to me. And he really understands how to kind of penetrate the kind of vibrational field that kind of, that exists within all of us. So we'll, uh, we'll leave it there and we'll, uh, we'll take it out with, uh, with SN Goenka. May he rest in peace. To come out of the bondages, the shackles, the chains of ignorance, of craving, of aversion, to enjoy real peace, real harmony, real happiness. May all of you enjoy real peace, real harmony, real happiness. But... Save Mangalan Bhavet Save Mangalan
Thanks for listening to Hell and Wellness. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Matt Ruby. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can leave voice messages for us at anchor.fm slash Wellness. That's anchor.fm slash Wellness. You can also see all the shows there. And you can email us at helenwellness at gmail.com. And if you remember, please uh, rate us and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts. Say something nice. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.